Um, if we haven't met or talked before, my name is Brian. It's great to see you all. Um, I'd love to get to know you a little bit better. <clears throat> I serve here as a deacon. And um, we're going to be discussing something today that continues a theme that we have been talking about throughout the year. Uh, the theme for the year is what? Give it to me with gusto. Yes, I love that. Great. Uh, learning to pray. So we have approached this um, issue from various angles over the last few months. And a couple of weeks ago, I uh, was up here talking to you about learning to pray from the Psalms. And one of the things that we uh, proposed is that we can actually... We can actually... Um, <clears throat> learn something very important from this sort of double life that some of the psalms live, okay? So some of the psalms we noted are written in first-person voice, often from the perspective of King David, saying things like, save me, O God, you know, for my enemies have come against me, or, or whatever. But the superscriptions of these psalms indicate to us that we ought to use these psalms not only for uh, like historical interest in learning about the life of David, but actually as resources and guides for prayer and worship ourselves, right? But then, on the other side, we noted that in the New Testament, a lot of these psalms are used as prophecy, right? Or understood as prophecy. So that when uh, King David speaks, the New Testament writers understood that it wasn't actually... King David's voice that was speaking, but actually the voice of the Messiah, the future uh, king who we know to be Jesus, right? And so we asked, how do we read these psalms so that we understand them both as resources for prayer and also as prophecy, as the voice of the Messiah? And we said, well, maybe the answer to this is that we can read them um, as people who are in union ourselves with Jesus. So we talked about a threefold resonance for the Davidic Psalms. First, a resonance where we're praying the Psalms as expressions of our own experience. Second, uh, a way of praying the Psalms where we are praying them as the words, as united to Jesus, so that his words become our words, right? Remember that he linked himself to our experience and then pulled us into his experience. So he both prays with us and we also pray with him in these Psalms. And then thirdly, um, this uh, third part of this threefold resonance is that we pray in union with our brothers and sisters around the world, right? Expressing as one of them their experiences and responses to God as well, all right? <clears throat> so this is one thing, one way that I think we can learn from the riches of the Psalms to be guided into a deeper life of prayer. All right, so maybe you went home and you were like, great, let's do it. I'm going to pray the Psalms. And if you did that, I am almost certain that you will run into a problem almost immediately. And that problem is that, I don't know, I don't, haven't done the count, but maybe like two-thirds of the Psalms talk about enemies. Have you noticed this? So anytime that I have tried to pray the Psalms or start praying through the book of Psalms, this is one of the biggest problems that I run into, is that it is always talking about 
uh, my enemies. Well, why is this a problem? Well, a couple of reasons this might be a problem for you as you try to pray from the Psalms. One problem might be, or one aspect of this problem might be, that you may not feel like you have enemies. Okay? This is the case for me often. I'm like, you know, David is over here praying, you know, Lord, save me from these people who are about to kill me. And I'm over here thinking, I don't really have any people who are about to kill me, so I don't really resonate with this. For example, Psalm 7, save me from all my pursuers and rescue me, or they will tear me like a lion, ripping me apart with no one to rescue. Uh, The other problem that you might have is that many of the Psalms express the hope, and in some cases, even the earnest desire and prayer that God would utterly destroy those enemies. So sometimes we have the Psalms that just express the fact, sort of a hope in the fact that God is going to do this, right? For example, Psalm 11, he will rain down burning coals and sulfur on the wicked. A scorching wind will be their portion. Or maybe Psalm 73, The psalmist writes, Then I understood their destiny, that is the destiny of the wicked. Indeed, you put them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. How suddenly they become a desolation. They come to an end, swept away by terrors. So that kind of language might start to make us uncomfortable, right, with our sort of modern sensibilities. And then sometimes the Psalms go an even step further, not just expressing this hope in the fact that God will bring to an end the wicked or our enemies, but expressing a desire that he would do it, actually praying for it, right? So, for example, I'm going to give you a few examples here because I want you to feel how this works in the Psalms. Psalm 10, break the arm of the wicked and evil person. Call his wickedness into account until nothing remains of it. Or Psalm 35, let those who seek to kill me be disgraced and humiliated. Let those who plan to harm me be turned back and ashamed. Let ruin come upon him unexpectedly and let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his ruin. So again, this is, a, this is an active wish, a prayer to God for the downfall of the wicked and the enemy. Or, Psalm 59, consume them in rage, O God. Consume them until they are gone. Then they will know the end, then the ends of the earth will know that God rules over Jacob. Or Psalm 69, pour out your rage on them and let your anger burn over, uh, sorry, burning anger overtake them. Make their fortification desolate. May no one live in their tents. Let them be erased from the book of life and not be recorded with the righteous. Or even the famous or infamous line at the end of Psalm 137, which is a psalm of raw emotion and even anger, uh, a, a psalm of the exiles who have been taken captive in war to Babylon, who are facing the taunts of their oppressors, and who say at the end of this prayer, Daughter Babylon, Doomed to destruction, happy is the one who pays you back. 
what you have done to us. Happy is the one who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. So if we're going to learn to pray from the Psalms, we have to ask ourselves, what place should there be in our prayers for hoping that God will and even praying for God to destroy the wicked and the enemy? After all, didn't Jesus say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you? What are we supposed to do here? All right. We're going to tackle this question today and see if we can let the Psalms push us rather than bring our own views onto the Psalms. And one of the ways that I want to do that, I've given you an example of a psalm like this. Sometimes we call these psalms that actively wish for this or pray for this imprecatory psalms. An imprecation is something like a curse, right? Um, I've given you an example of that, Psalm 58 in your handout that you can kind of reference as we go. Um, I also, I'm actually going to spend a bit of time talking about Psalm 59, the psalm following that. So you may also want to pull that up um, on your phone or turn to it in your Bible. <clears throat> let, me, let me read, uh, beginning in verse 1 in Psalm 59. It says this, Rescue me from my enemies, my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Rescue me from evildoers and save me from men of bloodshed. Because, look, Lord, they set an ambush for me, Powerful men attack me, but not because of any sin or rebellion of mine. For no fault of mine, they have run and take up a position. Awake to help me and take notice. Lord God of armies, you are the God of Israel. Rise up to punish all the nations. Do not show favor to any wicked traitors. They return at evening, snarling dogs and prowling around the city. Look, they spew from their mouths sharp words from their lips. For who, they say, will hear? But you laugh at them, Lord. You ridicule all the nations. I will keep watch for you, my strength, because God is my stronghold. My faithful God will come to meet me. God will let me look down on my adversaries. Do not kill them, otherwise my people will forget. By your power, make them homeless wanderers and bring them down, Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouths and the words of their lips, let them be caught in their pride. They utter curses and lies. Consume them in fury. Consume them until they are gone. Then people will know throughout the earth that God rules over Jacob. And they return at evening, snarling like dogs and prowling around the city. They scavenge for food. They growl if they are not satisfied. But I will sing of your strength and will joyfully proclaim your faithful love in the morning. For you have been a stronghold for me, a refuge in my day of trouble. To you, my strength, I sing praises, because God is my stronghold, my faithful God. So the first thing that I want to try to do, to wrestle with here, is to try to define who it is who are enemies who fall into the category of enemies or wicked people in the psalm. Okay? And then we're going to ask, 
do these people actually exist in our world? But first, who are they? <clears throat> well, I want to say that actually in the Psalms, when, the, when we talk about the enemy or the wicked in the Psalms, these people are not your typical neighbor who does not, say, believe in Jesus. Okay? These people aren't the downstairs, or maybe upstairs is better, the upstairs neighbor who has late night parties who maybe you want to pray in your morning quiet time would fall off the balcony or something like that, right? This is not the wicked or the enemy in the Psalms. The enemy in the Psalms is an active opponent of God. An active opponent of God's anointed one, his Messiah, of his people, and an opponent of the vulnerable. It is a person in the Psalms who has uh, had grace and love extended to them and rejected it and arrogantly continued on their way, sowing violence and bloodshed in the world. This is very clear in all of these Psalms that these are arrogant people who oppose God with a tight fist and an uplifted hand. Even in the Psalm I just read, notice the descriptors of the wicked or evildoer. Those who rise up against me, right? And David here is God's anointed one, right? Men of bloodshed, powerful men, wicked traitors, my adversaries. Things that they do are they set an ambush for me. They attack me for no fault of mine. They run and take up a position. They return at evening snarling like dogs and prowling around the city. And they spew from their mouths words like, who is going to hear about what we do? In other words, God doesn't see or care. Maybe he doesn't even exist. Um, so this prayer, the one that Psalm 59 that I read, which is actually associated by the editors of the Psalms in their superscription with the time when Saul sent men to watch David's house to kill him. The enemies are those who feel that their position of power is threatened by God's anointed one. In other words, they're jealous. And they seek to do violence to him and arrogantly boast because they don't think God exists or can do anything about it. So these are the enemies or the wicked, according to the Psalms. And if we're going to take seriously the idea that the Davidic Psalms, like this one about David, are actually prophetic prayers speaking about things that will happen in the life of the Messiah to come, we can see in here like the prototype, actually, of the very kinds of people who will eventually crucify Jesus himself and who continue to stand against the work of God in his kingdom today. So Psalm 2, which is a kind of intro to the entire book of Psalms, I think kind of introduces the concept of the enemy in the Psalms when it says this. Uh, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against Yahweh and against his anointed, right? His, his Messiah. These are opposers of God. Um, other Psalms emphasize not just the opposition to God, his Messiah, and his people, but also the, uh, the wicked or the enemy as people who are 
interested in profiting from the suffering of others, right? They build on the, uh, the uh, vulnerability of the weak. So Psalm 10, for example, describes one of these people. He waits in ambush near settlements. He kills the innocent in secret places. His eyes are on the lookout for the helpless. He lurks in secret like a lion in a thicket. He lurks in order to seize the victim. And he seizes the victim and drags him in his net. So he is oppressed and beaten down. Helpless people fall because of the wicked one's strength. And he says to himself, God has forgotten. He hides his face. He'll never see. And the psalmist says, God, rise up. Lift your hand. Do not forget the oppressed. So the reason I'm telling you all this is because I don't want you to start to incorporate into your morning quiet time a section of prayer where you uh, call down curses of God upon you know, your friends, neighbors, and coworkers. Okay? Because I'm not going to say that some of those people might not fall into the, I'm a lot of negatives there. <clears throat> some of those people in your life might fall into that category the psalm category of wicked or enemy, but not necessarily your average person, right? Okay. Instead, the urgent prayers in the psalms for God's judgment have to do with people who are actively, intentionally, and arrogantly sowing violence, deception, and oppression, and trying to get in the way of God's work and the spread of the kingdom through his people. So the question is then, do such people actually exist in our world? Well, um, we do live in a world where, for example, uh, 27 million people are trafficked into slavery every year. We live in a world in which uh, powerful drug cartels profit on the addictions of vulnerable people. We live in a world in which wars, often driven by greed, the desire for expansion and resources, displace, um, displace at the end of 2021, 89 million people. A world in which there are labor injustices and a world in which 36 million Christians suffer high levels of persecution and discrimination for their faith. And last year, 5,621 of them were killed. And of course, we live in a world where God himself came and was killed, put to death. So, I would say that, yes, such people do exist in the world. I mean, come on. If 27 million people are trafficked into slavery, there are some people intentionally doing that in the world, right? People who are arrogantly opposing the work of God do not care if he sees or do not believe that he exists, and people who wish to profit from the weakness of others. But if you're like me, you know, many of us live pretty protected and isolated from such realities, right? We are probably more incredulous in our position of 
uh, of protection and isolation from these things than our brothers and sisters around the world who maybe experience them more directly, more rawly, right? I used to uh, spend a lot of time with refugees um, in Kansas City, where I lived previous to here. And I can remember stories that people would tell me just nonchalantly. And I would just be like, what? You know, I, this guy, I was like, you know, so why did you leave your village? You know, this, and he's like, well, you know, people came in with machine guns and started shooting people. And I remember another story of a woman telling me how she was swimming. She, because of uh, danger, trying to escape danger, she swam across a river and lost one of her family members in, in the transit, right? Yet we are, um, many of us, I'm not saying all, many of us are somewhat separated, a, a step removed from these kinds of experiences. And so maybe we don't understand as much as these people do the reality that the enemy, the opposer of God, these people exist in the world. Um, I've heard Devin, <clears throat> on a number of occasions, uh, quote from Miroslav Volf, uh, Croatian theo theologian, <clears throat> who um, proposes that, yeah, many of us in the West don't understand the need for God's justice because we don't understand the extent of evil in the world. He says, imagine speaking to people as I have, whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned, then leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Right, and he implies, see if your perspective on God's justice, on enemies and the wicked, begins to change. So such people do exist. I would further say, they not only exist in the realm, in the human realm, but enemies of God and of God's people exist in the realm of the spiritual dimension as well, right? Um, the Apostle Peter actually uses almost identical imagery that the Psalms use about these enemies to talk about the devil. He says, your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That's almost identical language to what we just read in Psalm 10 about the lion lurking for the weak. And Paul, of course, says in Psalm 6, or Psalm 6 Ephesians 6, that we are engaged in a war against the spiritual powers and rulers and authorities in the heavenly dimension. So not only do the enemies and the wicked exist in our flesh and blood experience, but they also exist in the spiritual dimension, standing against us and wishing for our downfall. All right, so we've gotten to this point. <clears throat> we've said, all right, the Psalms talk a lot about enemies. So if we're going to pray through the Psalms, we're going to be praying about enemies. And we've said, the enemies are not just your normal neighbor. They're people who oppose God actively and arrogantly, right? Sowing violence and destruction in the world. And we've said such people do exist in the world and also in the spiritual dimension. But now we've come to the actual real question, right? Which is, okay, but should we pray for their destruction? <laughs> um, I think this brings up a serious tension, right? 
Because there, 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 are, there are two sides to this question. On the one side, it's abundantly clear that God does want to stop in their tracks people who sow violence and oppression and stand against God's work in the world. Right? And this is what prayers like break the arm of the wicked or knock out the teeth of the lion really are getting at. They want God, their, their desire for God to cripple or stop in their tracks people who have uh, like a path of strewn bodies behind them, right? Like, uh, I mean, one kind of extreme but somewhat helpful example for me is to think about like an active shooter situation, right? What are you going to pray in an active shooter situation? Are you going to pray, Lord, I pray that you would, you know, work in this person's heart right now, and so on and so forth. Maybe so. I'm not saying that's the wrong thing to pray, necessarily. But I think it makes some sense also to pray, Lord, stop them, right? Cut them down, because they are cutting others down. They are sowing violence and destruction in your, your world. Okay? But not just are there the prayers to stop the wicked. Sometimes there are the prayers for actual retributive justice, right? That they would be paid back for what they have done. Um, right, we read the one, make them, uh, let's see, you know, well, I won't read it again. We read it already. <clears throat> you get the idea, retributive justice, right? Payment back for what they deserve. And actually, this makes some sense maybe as well, right? Because scriptures tells us over and over again that God does desire and intend to bring ultimate justice to the world. So, and, uh, and he does this not just in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. Like Paul in 2 Thessalonians says, it is just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted. And he says, this will take place when God is revealed with his heavenly angels from heaven, and he will take vengeance with flaming fire on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Repay with affliction those who afflict you. And Paul thinks that's just. And of course, in Revelation, the martyrs, uh, the souls of the martyrs cry out, Lord, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? Um, but, well, yeah, so we'll wrap that up and just say, how can it be wrong? Like, if God does desire justice, <laughs> if God does desire ultimately to repay people for what they deserve. Something in me says, how could it be wrong for us to desire that and also to pray for that? But, of course, we have to deal with what Jesus says, which is love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be, he says, sons or children of your Father in heaven. And this is where we get that real tension. So we have... In a certain sense, this makes sense, to pray for this justice, for God to stop the wicked and even pay them back. But on the other, other side, 
we have this call to love and pray for our enemies. So I want you to turn to your neighbor and talk about, can you resolve that tension? Do you, um, is it possible for us to both love our enemies and pray for their, their downfall? <laughs> All right. Turn to your neighbor just a second. See if you can talk about that, that question. All right. Let's um, bring it back together. Um, good, something good for discussion to continue later. Um, I'm just curious, anyone brave enough to just shout out some thoughts? Uh, I want to hear what you guys discuss. Anyone? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yep. Very good. Yeah, I like that. Okay. Yep. What else? Yeah. We were discussing separation of the person from their state of being as an enemy. Okay. So one could, could love on the person themselves and or pray on salvation for that person. Uh -huh. But pray destruction on their state of being being opposed to Christ. Uh, okay. So like destroy them, destroy the enemy qua enemy. <laughs> right? Right? But not necessarily, either by removing them from that state of being or, okay, interesting. Yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. Anyone else? Yeah. I think back when people are Uh, right. but, so, but right. it was like this, yeah, 
respond to that is we always pray that everyone will respond to God mm-hmm. there's the mystery of how God works that mm-hmm. it's almost that how can you be drawn to God because of the wickedness of mm-hmm. God and mm-hmm. that wickedness that exists mm-hmm. I can't say how that is I don't know how God does that but I don't have prayers for our enemies to come to know him and mm-hmm. Very good. Yeah, these are great thoughts. Um, yeah, really good, really good discussion. I think, <clears throat> I think here's what I would say, is that we have established that this is messy business. And that somehow, I think the, the whole canon of Scripture, the whole of the Bible, including these Psalms as well as what Jesus is telling us, are pushing us into a kind of, uh, to live out a kind of tension with prayer, right? Because I think this tension is actually a tension that inheres within the very nature of God himself. That God is a God of mercy and compassion. Absolutely. This is like all all over the Bible, all over the Old Testament but also that God is a God of justice and that he will, he says, you know, bring justice upon those who um, harm his creation and oppose what he's doing, right? And both of those are true somehow. And so if both of those are true, if if that tension is part of the nature of God, I think that tension somehow ought to be also part of our prayer life. <laughs> I'm not saying I know when to pray which, necessarily, but that we should pray for both somehow, in some way, asking God to lead us, I think is something true. We can pray, Lord, have mercy on this person. Change them. You know, forgive them for they know not what they do. And we can also pray, O Lord, cut them down. Bring them to an end. Destroy and repay them for what they have done, Lord. Somehow both. (laughs) But I think the key thing is we wrestle with this tension and maybe let the Psalms guide and teach us in this way it is important to think about the manner in which we pray this. So I want to say three things about the way we do it. One thing is that we should always pray these kinds of prayers with humility. Because we have to remember what Alexander Solzhenitsyn said about humankind. He said that the the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. Right? The point is, good and evil, that line, it's inside of us. And who's to say that we might not have made the choice to oppose God and to sow violence and destruction in the world under the right circumstances? So always pray with that knowledge, that remembrance, that but for the grace of God, so go you. 
And in fact, and this is kind of mind-bending, Paul himself in Romans 3 uses a whole amalgamation of uh, descriptions of the wicked and the enemy in the Psalms to say that all of us are sinners. Okay, so, wait, I thought this was like this particular category, but then Paul is sort of like saying, eh, well, maybe you too. <laughs> okay. So we pray with humility and with trepidation because we know that that line separating good and evil runs through our, our own heart as well. And then second, <clears throat> this is very important. We pray leaving the execution of justice to God alone. Because we are, in, we are called to love our enemies, right? Not to exact vengeance upon them. In fact, uh, the scripture is very clear, do not repay evil for evil. Don't do it. Instead, leave room for the wrath of God, because God said, vengeance is mine and I will repay. So actually, when we pray psalms of, you know, like imprecatory psalms or whatever we call them, this is actually an act of expressing, yes, Lord, this is a desire that I have, but I am casting uh, the execution of that desire or the decision as to whether that is right or wrong upon you because you are the judge, not me, right? And actually, maybe it's only this. This is what Miroslav Volf tries to argue. It's only this that allows for true love of enemies and true nonviolence is when we take the execution of justice out of our own hands, the execution of vengeance out of our own hands and repayment for people for what they have done, and we just give it to God. That is what allows us to act in love toward people, right? Because we know God, in his wisdom, he will take care of all of those issues, right? And then I think, finally, we have to pray with our eyes always on the cross. Because somehow the cross, Jesus dying, is the place where that tension in the nature of God, mercy and justice, is somehow meets and is, is resolved. Right? Because God himself came into the world to die under the, um, you know, hatred of his enemies. And in fact, he did not retaliate. He is our example in not retaliating, but entrusted himself to, to God. Um, but in his death, he actually took on the retribution of God on himself for his enemies. And so the cross both expresses the mercy of God, his infinite love toward humankind, and also the justice of God, since God, God's justice is satisfied in what Jesus did.